The views and opinions expressed on Unlock Your Wealth Radio are those of the host, guests, and callers only and are not necessarily the views of Unlock Your Wealth Radio, Heather Wagonalls, or Success Publishing International. More willpower than a barefoot woman at a shoe sale. Able to stretch a single paycheck for an entire month. Makes money concepts easier than third grade math. Introducing your purveyor of prosperity, Heather Wagonall. Work all day, stress all night. Take your mind off your money and focus on your life. Money don't matter for the stuff it bought. It's the way you think, not what you've got, yeah. Unlock Your Wealth Radio starts This segment of Unlock Your Wealth Radio is sponsored in part by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at unlockyourwealthradio.com forward slash free book and click on the link to over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the show, everyone. We're so glad to have you. I am your purveyor of prosperity, Heather Wagonhals, and I am flanked by the maestro of moolah, Michael hey, Terry. folks. How you doing? And we are going to help you get your money mind right on today's show with the following great features. So first... First off, Maestro, what is our key? Our key today, number 11, is uh, forget the perfection principle. Yes, FTPP. FTPP. Forget the perfection principle. So this is an amazing key. This helps us keep it all together because one of the things that we do is we punish ourselves when it comes to successful money management when we make a mistake. And so we're going to learn how to successfully uh, focus on the progress of the process instead of the perfection of the process. Remember, life is a journey, not a race. And so we don't necessarily win every race, but we can certainly um, win the journey. Mm -hmm. I am going to ask you to visit our keys to riches.com website if you want to get everything that you need to know about our keys to riches financial philosophy right there in one fell swoop. Plus, you can sign up for our classes and take our free initial financial literacy class uh, and learn the financial philosophy of the keys to riches and, and start incorporating it into your life. Uh, each and every day. And we're going to have a really cool challenge coming up in January. And I'm already kind of testing it out and filming it. So we're going to have that also. Um, But it's going to be crazy. It's going to be like a brain behavior and budgeting challenge. It's going to be pretty amazing. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, And I'm already like, now that I'm into day three of it, I'm already kind of noticing differences. But if you want to follow along with me, it'll start at the beginning of the year and you'll be able to watch me as I chronicle my progress into expanding my mind. And in addition to expanding your mind, when you participate, you're going to be able to expand your wallet Nice, as well. And that's a huge thing. I like that. That's why you're listening. So, so, uh, so that's uh, tune in for this week's key at keystoriches.com, or you can catch it right here where you listen to Unlock Your Wealth Radio at whatever app or radio repeater or uh, terrestrial radio station you are listening from. Uh, also, we have our moolah word of the day. Oh, boy. 
And I'm going to channel a movie, if you will, with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. And it's kind of appropriate for the time of year. Trading Places. You remember Trading Places? So we're going to channel this movie and the breakfast specifically that Eddie Murphy had. We're going to talk about what he learned in that breakfast meeting. I forget the breakfast meeting. So anyway, so uh, that's our Moolah word coming up. And then we also have author um, uh, Mr. Scranton. David Scranton. David Scranton. He is CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies, and he's going to talk about his really cool book, Return on Principle. And so I'm excited about that because it'll be a great interview. Cool. But first, let's circle back to our uh, moolah word of the day, shall we? If you have uh, not seen it because you're a millennial and your parents haven't played it for you, uh, I refer to Trading Places. It's a great movie that came out. Was it in the 80s? Way when I was a teenager, <laughs> this movie came out and I was fixated because I wanted to be a stockbroker. Obviously, I've shared with the audience in the past that um, Gordon Gecko told me greed was good, so I had to be a stockbroker because mm-hmm. I grew up poor and I wanted to be rich. So Trading Places was another great stockbroker movie, if you will. Mm-hmm. And these two old guys made a bet. Uh, that they could take a complete bomb and turn him into a success and they could take a complete success and totally wreck his life. (laughs) And uh, what ends up happening is they, the two that are being toyed with in the social experiment um, actually join forces. But in in his first day on the job, Eddie Murphy is treated to a breakfast and he's got orange juice and he's got bacon and he's got eggs and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And they're talking about the futures markets. And investing in what we call commodities. And commodities is our moolah word of the day. And it's a physical substance such as food, grains, and metals, which is interchangeable with another product of the same type and which investors buy or sell, usually through futures contracts. The price of the commodity is subject to supply and demand. Risk is actually the reason exchange trading of the basic agriculture cultural products began. For example, a farmer risks the cost of producing a product ready for market at the sometime in the future because he doesn't know what the selling price would be. More generally, a product which trades on a commodity exchange is also considered a commodity, and this would include foreign currencies and financial instruments and indexes. So those can also be traded with futures contracts as well. So those can be considered commodities, but agriculturally is typically how commodities were first established. So, you know, raw metal, and foodstuffs and things like that. Right. Things that drive the price up. In the movie, the the freeze in, uh, on the Florida orange juice, uh, on the Florida oh, orange crops, yeah. remember? I do. You know, the beaker, remember? They had to meet with Beekman or whatever his name was. Um, and he gave him the citrus, the crop reports uh-huh. ahead of time. Uh-huh. And so they uh, took the information, they swapped the report to bankrupt the two old guys that made the bet. Uh, so that's what we have to pay attention to is that's what you're, you're forecasting. Is the crop going to be successful? What are the weather reports? Like, so you could use all of these kind of hocus pocus and create your own alchemy when you invest in commodities. And people actually get good at that. Yeah. If you think about some markets that have been ruined because of crop diseases and things like that, it totally affects those commodity prices. So that's your moolah word of the day. If you'd like a further, I think that Trading Places did a really great job of explaining the markets for for it being a movie and for what it did. So I Uh thought that that was great.
But uh, how about we talk about our guest, shall we? Uh, David Scranton is CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies. The New York-based Sound Income Strategies was founded by Mr. Scranton of Scranton Financial Group, Connecticut. And he is one of the nation's most successful and respected independent financial advisors. David has been specializing in the universe of income-generating savings and income investment strategies for over 15 years. Before that, he followed a typical business model that based heavily on the stock market-based investment strategies. But in 99, his knowledge in the history of the market allowed him to predict the collapse in 2000 and to also be able to predict the 20-plus year secular bear market cycle. Uh, he originally planned to write another book, but he tore up the manuscript because he realized this is the book that investors need right now. So let's welcome uh, Return on Principle author David Scranton to the show. David, welcome to Unlock Your Wealth Radio. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I'm so excited to talk about your new book, Return on Principle, Seven Core Values to Help Protect Your Money in Good Times and Bad. That's quite a promise. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, when I was writing this book, I realized there were a lot of books out there already that were really based upon what I call the, you know, the outside game, not so much the core values. And, you know, it's funny, what I've noticed just hosting my own television show is that the thing that separates the most successful investors versus the not-so-successful are the same things that separate those advisors that have very, very uh, good results with their clients versus those that have not-so-great results. And that, surprisingly, has a lot less to do with the external game of money a lot less to do with the financial algorithms as to how one should be allocated or when to buy and when to sell. But it has a lot more to do with the inside game. Does, does someone have really what it takes internally to be a good investor or a good advisor? Thus, the seven core values. So let's kind of delve into those. So what is the first core value that all of us need to pay attention to when it comes to investing in good times and bad? I always tell people, you know, the first core value is really overprotection. Because the old rule that if you lose 50%, you need to make 100% to gain back what you lost. So it's important to prevent losses whenever possible. And Warren Buffett is quoted as saying, there's two rules of money. The first is uh, don't ever lose money. And the second rule is don't ever forget rule number one. <laughs> so that's why overprotection is so important, you know, making sure that you're not digging yourself out of a hole. Okay. So I want to focus on being protected. So what does overprotection mean? As it, so because, you know, sometimes we get so concerned with saving money or not losing money in that respect that we can overanalyze things. The infamous analysis paralysis can occur. So how do we stay in the overprotection mode, exercise that value of being overprotective without paralyzing ourselves or creating inaction? Well, you're right. That's a very good point. You can never be so overprotected that you're, you're paralyzed with fear and you're afraid to take any risk at all because, God forbid, you, you lose money. But there are different ways to, to overprotect yourself. One, if someone is going to be in the stock market, 
which is the more aggressive end of the investment spectrum, they can still protect themselves by putting in stop losses in their investment portfolios and things like that. They can use put options sometimes as hedges. So, and a lot of people forget about that. They just think about, gee, let's invest, let's go for growth. When the reality of it is, half the time you invest for growth and you end up with shrinkage instead of growth. And nobody wants that. So even in the more aggressive stock market, you can do things to protect yourself. What I tell people, though, is that if you are retired or within 10 years of retirement, overprotection means that you should have half your, more than half your money in fixed income. In other words, you should have less than half your money in the stock market overall. Why? Because the stock market is something people utilize for growth for the future. You know, when they, when they don't need income today or they won't need income for a long time. As you start to get within that final 10 years of retirement, I believe strongly having less than half your money in the stock market helps. And by definition, when you go into fixed income instruments, you're protecting your money. Protection becomes first and foremost. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So, can I, um, so that makes sense for older Americans, but we've got Generation Z entering the workforce. We've got millennials that are, you know, families, starting families, they're buying properties. You know, how do they manage overprotection, but still maintain growth because they're at that age that they need that growth? They're not close to retirement. They're 20 or more years away from it. Well, the first thing they need to realize is that the financial world has done them a disservice as investors and have done people like myself a disservice as financial advisors because they taught us that the most important determinant in, in determining how much of their money they should have in the stock market has to do with their risk tolerance level. Translation, time frame. Uh, I believe that, that what, whereas that's important, that's only half the equation. The other half of the equation is to ask whether or not we're likely to get rewarded for the risk. You know, it's one thing for me to say that I can afford to take a certain risk. Um, For example, I can go in the ring with Mike Tyson. I could box a three-minute round, and, you know, I'm sure eventually my wounds will heal. (laughs) The question becomes, why would I want to subject myself to that? But now if you said the neighbors put a purse together of $10 million that Mike and I are going to split and it doesn't matter who wins, you know, now I might think, okay, now there's a reward. It's $5 million. Maybe I could do the old Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope, and if he doesn't kill me, I'm $5 million richer. There's a reward in exchange for the risk. Well, in the financial industry, they never talk to us about potential reward, and that's a big mistake. And I think... The reason for that is because the financial industry has an axe to grind, a reason to brainwash all of us into thinking that the markets are completely 100% random. And what we talk about in my book is the fact that there are certain very predictable, repeatable trends throughout history. And if your younger investors, your younger listeners read about those trends, then they'll most likely draw a conclusion that right now the market's at a record high. And even though the financial planning textbook, if there is such a thing, says they can afford to take the risk, they're probably going to come to the common sense conclusion that they're unlikely to get rewarded for that risk in the stock market over the next few years. And they may voluntarily choose, even at a younger age, to have a lower percentage of their money in the stock market right now than what those so-called financial planning textbooks would typically espouse. 
You are listening to David Scranton, CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies and author of the new book, Seven uh, Return on Principles, Seven Core Values to Help Protect Your Money in Good Times and Bad. This segment of Unlock Your Wealth Radio is sponsored in part by KeepMyID.org, the only service that actually prevents identity theft. All others are just monitoring services. Put your credit on lockdown with their special offer for Unlock Your Wealth Radio listeners by visiting UnlockYourWealthRadio.com forward slash keep my ID and click on the link to start protecting your financial future right now. Remember to use promo code WAGS. So I think that that's solid advice for the new people because I think that we get in this analysis paralysis once we finally warm up to the idea of risk instead of exercising buy low sell high we wind up buying high and then oh no everything falls apart and then we wind up selling low sure sure that happens all too often unfortunately and you know think about it this way imagine you know when you were 25 years old. You know, we talk about in our book the predictability and repeatability of stock market cycles, and I share with people the tools that allowed me to predict back in 1999 that the market was going to take a significant drop and that we were going to go into a long-term bear market cycle. Those same tools that allowed me to uh, predict in 2007 we're going to have a second drop bigger than the first, and the, the same tools that are making me right now project that we're, we're likely to have a third significant market drop uh, coming up around the corner in the range of 30 to 70%. So, you know, that means 15, 20 years of a pretty tough market. So imagine back when you were 25 years old, if I came to you and said, look, I want to be your financial advisor, and I'm going to charge you a fee uh, to manage your money, and here's the thing. You know, the markets aren't really going to cooperate, so for the next 15 or 20 years, you're going to get zero growth on your money. But, but, but don't worry about it because this textbook over here says that you can afford to take the risk and you have time on your side. So, Heather, go ahead. Go ahead. Just become a client. We're going to charge you that fee, and you're not going to make any money for the next 15 or 20 years. But, but that's okay because the financial planning textbook says it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah see, I'll pass. of course. Any logical person is going to pass. That's exactly true. And that's why investing is so much an inside game. People forget the common sense aspect of it. I mean, you probably know people who have, have almost died literally because they've had a medical issue. Their gut told them that, gee, this doesn't feel right, but they trusted the doctor. They said, well, you know, the doctor's the professional, so I'm just going to trust the doctor. And, you know, people, there's lots of people who have died or almost died because of that. And similarly, there are lots of people who have financially died twice since the turn of the century because they blindly trusted their advisor and they, they squashed their gut instincts. So core values also has to do with really trusting your gut instincts and using common sense when it comes to your money. I, I think perspective has a lot to do with that too, because whenever the market does take its dip, and I've been pretty successful myself in identifying key things that uh, were precipitators of market crashes. That that a crash is kind of a good thing, because for those of us that would like to, you know, would like to have something great like a blue chip stock, it's when it goes on sale and we look at it the wrong way, and it's like it's a discount sale. It's like running to the fashion outlet when stuff is seventy percent off. That people need to be flocking to the market when it crashes. And I think, you know, all those people that got burned because they sold instead of just hung in there, you know, the market's back again, just like it always is. 
it always goes up. It, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a yo-yo thing, and you just, you got to time it right. And I think that people, oh. they, they, by the time they get around to fixing to think about, perhaps maybe I should invest, it's always at the peak. Well, and, and you hit the first half of the equation. When you've taken that 50% shellacking, you know, at that point, try hard not to panic and not to sell. I mean, the barn door's open, the horses are already out. There's nothing you can do to fix it at that point. But the second half of the equation is having reserves to take advantage of those opportunities. You know, the affluent people in our world always have cash reserves. That's why the rich get richer. They buy real estate when real estate's cheap. They buy stocks when stocks are cheap. As average folks, we're all taught that we should stay fully invested. You know, think about the things that you've heard from brokers in the past. Well, you know, Heather, it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. (laughs) And these are all things that brokers are taught day one of stockbroker school so that they can brainwash their clients into just buying and holding. Well, I've got news for you. If you buy and hold and you're fully invested and the market takes a drop, then yes, you are going to be a victim of the market. But if you do what the wealthy do and you're willing to have some money on the sidelines, poised for market reentry, at the lower points, now you can become a capitalist. You can become an investor. And now that dip is your friend, not your enemy. And that's that second half of the equation of what you just discussed, quite frankly. Yeah, you know, and, and I think that, that both schools of thought are okay because we should be consistent with our investment choices, but we also need to have those reserves to be able to capitalize when, yeah. when things go on sale. And I think that, the, that both... Uh, are valid, depending on when you start, of course, but I'm a big double down and average down kind of person. <laughs> when when uh, when things go down, it's time to go shopping because somebody's going to make money. It doesn't matter which way. And I guess I was just fortunate when I was a stockbroker early on, you know, because my broker taught me that it doesn't matter which way the market goes, you can make money. And, and he taught me how to sell. And, you know, I was doing like 200 dials a day. My fingers bled the first week. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And that's when we used to have to sign forms in triplicate, too. Back in the day, there was no online trading. We were the only online trading. <laughs> kind oh, of of course. Oh, I know. I know. That's when I got into business at the same time. I, I understand completely. But you're right. You know, averaging down is a good thing. Um, be able to, to double down when, when you're behind in a position is a good thing. But you, gotta, you have to have the cash reserves to do that. And if you're fully invested, you probably remember back in the 80s, there was a mutual fund family that had this fictional character called Larry the Loser. Do you, do you remember that by any chance? Yes. Oh, my gosh. You're reaching way back. <laughs> do you remember? He was the unluckiest guy because out of some ridiculous period, like 10 years, he was a buy and hold investor, except somehow miraculously, he missed the 10 best days in the market out of 10 years. So he was in there every other day except for the 10 best days. And what what that mutual fund families, what their advertisement was designed to do was to say, look, you know, you could have so much more if you don't try to time the market because God forbid you missed the 10 best days. So being the, the kid who questioned everything, I went ahead and said, okay, I, I see that argument, but just for ha-has, you know, it's unrealistic to miss the 10 best days. Nobody could be that unlucky. Conversely, nobody could be lucky enough uh, to, uh, to, 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 be out of it for the 10 worst days. But let's just see the math and let's really see what happened if Larry the loser were in the market for 
10 years, but he just happened to be out for the 10 worst days, if that would have a different effect. So I went back and did the research and crunched the numbers, and what I found was that missing the 10 worst days was about three times more important, economically speaking, dollar for dollar, as compared to being there for the 10 best days. And wow. I sat back and questioned, yeah, I questioned why. So why are they making such a big deal about missing the 10 best days when it's really more important to avoid the 10 worst days? Now, both are a theoretical argument. It's impossible to do either one. But when I thought about it, I realized it's because these mutual fund families really have an ax to grind. You know, as an ex-broker, that nothing messes up a mutual fund manager's mojo worse than having unexpected inflows or outflows from your fund. So if the fund family can brainwash people to just buy and hold, well, then that's better for the fund. Is it better for the investor? Maybe, maybe not. But it's definitely better for the fund. So, yeah, that's, I guess I'm dating myself now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, though. That's all right. I, I was always money motivated. I grew up super poor. And so I was very, very enamored with Wall Street at an early age. And Gordon Gecko told me when I graduated high school that greed was good. And so I didn't look back. <laughs> He's, he's, he's what made yeah, me look, want to... Yeah, but look what happened to him. Yeah. Well, that little itty-bitty thing aside, details. Forget about those details. That's, that's not important. The point is that I got motivated, and I, and I sought uh, interest in the stock market at an early age and started my dollar-cost averaging back then, right when I turned 18. Actually, when I turned 18 was October of uh, 87, when, when, the, when it crashed. I remember talking about that in my economics class, my freshman year in college. I remember that. Well, I was actually a first-year broker back then. So it had a huge impact on me. And I think that's what gave me that value of overprotection because here I am, first year in the business, and wham, all of a sudden I see people taking a shellacking. Other brokers working with me took a sh- you know, their clients took a shellacking. And I think that was a lesson pretty early on you know, kind of akin to Warren's Buffett lesson, his lesson before he even said that, that the two rules of investing are to never lose money and never forget rule number one. So it definitely had an impact on me. Yeah, I, for for me, that's that's kind of where I learned the whole, you know, it's a discount sale. My, my first economics teacher in college was just amazing because we had such great examples for us and uh, th- examples like that in the marketplace. So uh, real quick, give us a couple other core values, just kind of name them off and, and, and tell us what we can be looking for when it comes uh, to this return on principle book. Well, the next two are detail orientation and diligence, which kind of go hand in hand. And the premise is that, you know, it used to be in the 80s and 90s that if you wanted to buy a mutual fund, you just looked at the rating service, you bought a five-star fund, and voila, you made money. Well, it hasn't worked like that since really the turn of the century. Also, um, with bonds, fixed income, and so on, it used to be you look at Moody's Standard & Poor's ratings, and you picked your bonds with that. Well, you know, we had a lot of highly rated bonds that failed in 2008, 2009. So the old simplified ways of doing things and picking investments are out the window now. And people need to have their due diligence to look beyond just those superficial ratings and really look at the financials of a company, thus detail orientation and diligence. The next two are coachability and leadership, and those two kind of go hand in hand. In other words, when you're faced with a preponderance of evidence, such as the evidence that I saw in the late 1990s, 
that we're going to go into a long-term secular bear market cycle. When you're faced with that preponderance of evidence, even though it flies in the face of everything that you thought you knew about investing, are you coachable enough to make a change? As I was in the late 1990s, when I changed from being a stock market specialist to being a fixed income specialist because I knew my old stock market model was no longer suitable to my clients. And not only are you coachable enough to make that change, but do you have enough leadership within you to take the path less traveled? When everyone is going down one path, are you willing to go the other path if you're the only one there? And then those, those are the next two. After that, it really comes down to honesty and financial fearlessness. Honesty means being brutally honest with yourself as to your own strengths and weaknesses when it comes to your money and having your advisor be brutally honest with him or herself. That's why there are questions in the book, questions designed to make this a usable thing for the do-it-yourselfer to ask him or herself about whether they possess the inside game, the seven core values. And if not, there's questions that person can use to ask their financial advisor to, to determine whether that advisor has mastered the inside game, if the advisor possesses those seven core values. Because the reality of it is that I find that 80 to 90% of individuals and 80 to 90% of advisors, although they may have the outside game, the advisors, they, they often don't have the inside game. They don't have those seven core values. Well, because folks at the end of the day... Go ahead. I'm just going to say at the end of the day, the seventh one being financial fearless, financially fearless is really just having the other six core values. If you have those, then that's your permission slip to be financially fearless with your money. Well, if we want to learn how to become financially fearless with our money and grab your new book, Return on Principle, as well as potentially get some great financial advice from you and your sound income strategies organization, how can folks find you? The best things come right to the book's website, returnonprinciple.com. And, of course, principle ends in P-L-E, because it's a little play on words, returnonprinciple.com. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much for being a part of our show today, David. And for those of you who are driving around without a pencil, never fear. UnlockYourWealthRadio.com is here where you can visit David's show page and get the links to his book and his website and so much more. So for the maestro of moolah, Michael Terry, I'm Heather Wagonhalls. Now go out and unlock your wealth today. UnlockYourWealthRadio.com is produced by Heather Wagonhalls and the Unlock Your Wealth Foundation. UnlockYourWealthRadio.com and its affiliates are copyrighted 2016 with all rights reserved. For more information on the Keys to Riches Financial Wellness Series, please visit our website at www.unlockyourwealth.com.